It's a real pleasure to welcome you to this podcast in conversation, created and hosted here at Queen's University Belfast, and a great pleasure also to introduce our research scholar today. David Livingston is Professor of Geography and Intellectual History at Queen's University and a Fellow of the British Academy. He is the author of numerous influential and highly regarded books, including The Geographical Tradition, Darwin's Forgotten Defenders, Putting Science in Its Place, Adam's Ancestors, and Dealing with Darwin. Professor Livingston is currently working on a history of climate reductionism funded by the Leverhulme Trust and entitled The Empire of Climate. He was awarded an OBE in 2002 and the CBE in 2019, and he has received the Gold Medal of the Royal Irish Academy and the Founders Medal of the Royal Geographical Society. He delivered the Gifford Lectures in Aberdeen in 2014 and the Dudleyan Lecture at Harvard in 2015. David, I want to focus our discussion today on some of the themes that have been raised in a recent book published by Johns Hopkins University Press, edited by Charles Withers and Robert Mayhew, and entitled Geographies of Knowledge, Science, Scale and Spatiality in the 19th Century. It may seem odd to begin not with one of your own books, but this book is a volume that's inspired by and written in profound admiration of you and your work in terms of geographical thinking about science. As the editors put it, the book is, quote, an acknowledgement of the intellectual debt and stimulus that its contributors and others have all been afforded by the scholarship of David Livingstone. So my first question is, could you say something for listeners about the central argument approach that you have established regarding what Withers and Mayhew in their book referred to as, quote, a turn toward the importance of place and space as explanatory categories in the study of science in historical and contemporary context? Yes, well, th thank you, Richard. Um, uh, I think the simplest way for me to uh, get a handle on that is uh, to go back a little bit to my earlier days when I wrote that book you mentioned, The Geographical Tradition. And what I was after in that book was trying to write an intellectual history of ideas about nature and society, space and culture and the like. Now, a lot of the work that had been, from my point of view at the time, already carried out on this sort of field seemed to me to be um, historiographically rather shallow. And my aim was to try and bring a more sophisticated historiography, one that was recognizable to historians of science, to bring that to bear on the history of what I called uh, the geographical uh, tradition. Now, of course, when I was writing that, it became clear to me that in writing the history of those ideas, um, those ideas weren't always the same in every place. Uh, what passed as geographical scholarship was different from one location uh, to another. But I plod on with the book anyway, and um, when, when that book was finished, I, I began to think about the reverse, not just the impact of the history of science on the history of geography, but what impact might geographical ideas have if brought to bear on intellectual history uh, more generally. Uh, there was a kind of reflexivity about it. So I'd written, um, I'd written a history of geography. Now I wanted to write a geographical history of, of science, if you like. So the real question, I suppose, is a counterintuitive one. Uh, and it goes like this. Uh, how can place matter or does place matter to the practice of science? 
I mean, uh, gravity seems to work the same in Beijing as it does in Boston or, or Belfast. So um, the question really was, <clears throat> did, did space or place make a difference? And it was rather like saying, saying does the social context make a difference? Does the intellectual context uh, make a difference? Uh, now, at this point in time, some historians of science, I think Richard, were already beginning to uncover a kind of uh, realization that where science is practiced does indeed make a difference to the kind of science that's practiced and also to the kinds of purpose to which scientific inquiry uh, would be directed. So uh, people like Simon Schaffer and Steve Shapin uh, were, were working on this. And uh, back in the mid-1980s, um, I began to try to think more systematically about that using um, kind of geographical vernacular, if you like, uh, to bring to bear on the subject. So um, as, I, as, I, as I went along, I think I thought about this in three ways, Richard. I think I thought, um, does place matter to the production of scientific ideas? I mean, are certain scientific ideas, did they emerge in particular places uh, because of some particularity of those locations or venues? I then thought, what about the way in which people encounter scientific ideas? I mean, does the location of where a person encounters a scientific idea make any difference to the way they receive it, to how it's mobilized, uh, to the purposes uh, for which it's put? And then, of course, the other question is a very geographical one. Um, how do ideas move around the world? How do they move from the place of their creation out into general circulation and uh, into the minds and heads and thought forms of people many, many, many miles away? So that's generally what I'm trying to do. Um, on the production side, I mean, whenever you begin to think about it, science is not only practiced in a laboratory. Uh, laboratory set certain conditions for who can enter it, how you police it, how it's to, to be run. Very different from the kind of scientific knowledge that might be reduced in a public space, like a museum, for example. Very different, again, from the science that would be um, uncovered, the knowledge that would be uncovered, um, say, in a field site. Um, if you were up on a glacier or something, it would be a very different kind of space. But also, I began to think, there's a lot of science that's practiced, for example, in on stock farms. After all, remember, Darwin learned a great deal about the origin of species through domestic, domestic breeding. So all of these different locations, I thought, merited interrogation and then how they move from there out into general circulation. So I think that's what I'm about in that project. And you mentioned particularity of location there, David, and another of the contributors to this book, John Agnew from UCLA, suggests that your Belfast location and what he calls your long affiliation with Queen's University Belfast seems, in his words, not simply incidental to the geography of intellectual history that you've crafted over the past 40 years or so. So the the particularity of your Belfast location and your university location. Could you comment on that suggestion? Yeah, well, of course, this was bound to happen, Richard, wasn't it? I mean, when, when um, you spend your time trying to place everybody else, somebody's bound to come along and try to place you somewhere. And uh, then um, the discomfort of that or the comfort of it, uh, you know, comes comes to the surface. But it's a great question. And I've thought a great deal about it uh, from a variety of perspectives. I mean, um, sometimes other people can see you much more clearly than you see yourself. 
you know, I, I got on with doing this work and so on without thinking too much. Hey, um, what's the space I'm in <laughs> contributing to this until someone comes along and, and says, Hey, look, let's have a look at where you're located. So I think it, the question focuses for me <clears throat> on an interesting distinction between the value of autobiography as opposed to biography. So I could tell you a story about, um, you know, how I came up with uh, these ideas, so forth and so on. But someone looking from the outside, writing biographically rather than autobiographically, might be much more clear about what happened than I am myself. So if I really wanted to know um, uh, the, the real story of, of Richard English, would an autobiography from Richard or would a biography, perhaps a critical one from someone else, tell me more? So I'm left with an interesting question about who takes best of all the measure of a life, one's own self or someone looking uh, from the outside. So others might might be seeing this uh, much more clearly. Now, more specifically, uh, I think, um, uh, strangely, I think that I wasn't thinking so much about my own location when I began working on this. But then it did begin to occur to me that there may well be unconscious forces. In, in a place like Northern Ireland, your location, your address, your tradition, and so on, often unspoken and taken for granted, are actually hugely formative in what you end up uh, working on and uh, on how you end up uh, thinking. So, you know, I grew up here um, in Northern Ireland um, in a version of Scots Presbyterianism. And uh, a person from the outside will say, well, then it's absolutely no surprise that when you, de when you wrote Dealing with Darwin, you were examining Scots Calvinist communities re responding to Darwin um, across the world. Am I working out my own neurosis? <laughs> Who knows? But uh, undoubtedly, um, you can't live in Northern Ireland without location mattering a great deal to matters of um, identity, uh, belonging, um, and things of that sort. And I'm sure John Agnew, uh, whom you're referring to in that piece, uh, has a pretty astute eye in observing that as far as, as far as I'm, I'm concerned. Now, as for Queen's University Belfast, well, when I came to, I was an undergraduate at Queen's as well. Uh, when I came here, um, my full intention was the one subject I was not going to study was geography. Um, I was much more interested in philosophy um, and English literature, and I took those subjects. And um, I remember going to my um, careers teacher at school, and I was thinking about doing something else, you know, I don't know, maybe psychology or archaeology or something. And being somewhat cautious, as um, a Northern Ireland grammar school teacher would have been in those days. Um, he said to me, look, you've done A-level geography and you've taken a, a, a great A in it. Um, uh, why don't you just, um, why don't you just take it for one year? Because it's safe, you know. And so I took geography for a year and at the end of it, I ended up getting invited into the honors school. And then I came across a course in the department, which I think everybody else hated enormously on the history of geographical thinking. And this was carried out by Bill Kirk, who was the head of department. Two-year course, and um, it was referred to colloquially as HGT, History of Geographical Thought, and was abominated. And I simply loved this course. I was about the only one who ever did. Because it opened up to me a whole realm of intellectual history. Uh, that history mattered, that the history of ideas is actually really a driving force in any discipline. 
and um, disciplines that are worth their salt, I think, um, are really aware of uh, the strengths and indeed the weaknesses of the intellectual tradition uh, in, in, uh, of which that discipline is a part. So I think that's what turned me on to this. And then, of course, I was blessed with a, a number of latterly great colleagues who likewise became interested in uh, the geography of science, the geography of ideas, intellectual history, and um, they have um, assiduously and honestly you know, read draft after draft of what I've written, um, uh, made uh, supportive but also critical comments, and all of that undoubtedly uh, has shaped the way I have thought about things over the past 30 or 40 years. And you mentioned there, David, the intellectual traditions within particular disciplines, and one of the things that Professor Agnew also refers to in his chapter in this book is what he calls, quote, the vitality intrinsic to the geographical study of science. And he sees this book that I'm talking about as evidence of that vibrancy and vitality. But how, how would you yourself assess the current stage of this wide field of intellectual endeavor? Well, I, I, naturally, I'm biased, of course, because I'm, uh, I'm very supportive of this kind of um, inquiry. I, I think, I think it's flourishing. Uh, in all honesty. And I think what I, I like most about this is that it is attracting scholars from across a whole range of different fields. I mean, this is no longer the possession simply of geography, if it ever was, because as I said early on, some of those historians of science were already discovering the importance um, of place and location and venue and, and so on. But I think it is true to say that a number of disciplines, um, history of science, um, the sociology of science, uh, within geography itself are referring to something that they refer, that they call the spatial turn in a variety of arenas. And it has enabled an imaginative connection with, um, uh, areas that you might not initially have thought of as, as, as particularly close. To, I mean, one example would be, um, uh, what role, uh, have the, did the colonies play in the production of scientific knowledge? So one might have thought of colonial studies as, um, not not too closely related to the intellectual history of science. But now it turns out that the production of scientific knowledge in colonial settings, hugely important, uh, not only in the physical sciences, or, uh, for example, having to go to colonial settings to set up astronomical observatories, to use local um, people in the uh, in the inquiries into in, into observing the, the heavenly bodies and so on, or the or pharmaceuticals, and the whole question of um, uh, drugs, and then the question about who owns that knowledge, how does that knowledge um, uh, move its way back to uh, domestic spaces, uh, what kinds of credit should be given to those local individuals who assisted with the uh, production of this knowledge. So I think that um, in those arenas, uh, thinking spatially about knowledge production has opened up, you know, new av avenues of inquiry in a whole range of of disciplines. And I think also um, what we're seeing is that this is not just a historical enterprise. Uh, I tend to have come about this um, historically, but um, surely even in our own day, we see that ideas, scientific ideas, are always located in a political context in a sociological context, in some cases in a religious context, or whatever. And thinking about those um, uh, wider contextual uh, venues um, is surely important to assessing what we're going to make of 
the scientific knowledge that is uh, that is uh, promulgated. I think one other thought that I've had is it turning out to be quite a fertile line of inquiry is what I call um, location and locution. And what I really mean by that is the relationship between speech and space. You know perfectly well, all of us in um, everyday life, that there are places where we're, we feel quite free to say certain things, but others where we feel decidedly unfree uh, to say them. Uh, we, we move into different speech registers when we're in different venues. And scientists do the same thing. When scientists are speaking to the public, they're not always saying exactly the same thing that they know they would say to their colleagues when they're working in the laboratory, um, or perhaps even um, with the lust for um, impact of, of scientific inquiry. Uh, will they say um, with, with the same um, kind of hesitancy um, uh, to the general public their findings, or do they feel they have to um, kind of uh, not be so aware to the public of the the statistical significance of something maybe not being as high as uh, the public would like to hear. I mean, you can see the way in which space matters a great deal in science communication. And I think that thinking about um, geographically about science opens up these questions to interrogation in a way which I think is not only historically interesting, but uh, in the contemporary world, extremely important. Thank you, David. And you mentioned there, amongst other things, religious context. And one of the contributors to this book, Geographies of Knowledge, Ronald Numbers, addresses specifically debates about science and religion, two phenomena which are often presented publicly as being at odds with one another. Can you say something, David, about how your own research has affected your assessment of what's frequently been presented as a binary antagonism between religion and science? Yes, I've worked a fair bit on that, um, Richard. I think that um, there's one initial observation, I think, though, that I need to make here uh, before I say one or two things about my own, own, own findings. I think there's a distinction between uh, making a normative judgment about what the relationship between science and religion ought to be. A person could declare, for example, uh, there just is intrinsic conflict between science and religion. Or another person could make a normative judgment saying there just is not conflict between science and religion. Now, I'm going to leave that question aside uh, just for the minute and maybe not even return to it because that's a different question from what historically has been the relationship between science and religion. Um, so because I've worked historically, then I've asked myself, is this conflict interpretation one that cuts history at its joints? Does it really help us understand the um, history of um, science as opposed to religious in, um, inquiry and so on? Now, um, I do think that there are occasions when there have been conflicts uh, between science and religion. Uh, the Galileo case is a good case in point. And in the 1630s, whenever Galileo, of course, gets um, arraigned and, uh, for heresy and uh, so on, um, it, it's widely regarded as a classic example of conflict between science and religion. And I think to the, in, to the public eye, that still seems to be the case. On the other hand, when you look over this in some detail, you uh, find out that the political context of Pope Urban is not unimportant to this. You find out that uh, Galileo was a sort of awkward customer and was forever trying to get the benediction of the Pope on uh, what he himself thought were rather chancy ideas. 
Um, so you begin to see that even if there was conflict, it's a good deal more complicated and not as easily reducible to an inevitable and an inherent conflict uh, that uh, many people think uh, were the case. But then there's a different historiographical model, um, one of uh, cooperation. And you get a lot of people saying, for example, um, of course with greater nuance now, that there was an important link between Puritanism in England in the 17th century and uh, the growth of certainly certain types of practical sciences, um, agriculture, uh, shipping, uh, navigation, and things of that sort. And uh, one of the arguments is that Puritanism induced habits of uh, reading and learning, and uh, it was easy to transfer the, those over into the areas of scholarship. Um, in fact, um, for the Catholic Church, there is a huge tradition, there was a huge tradition of observational astronomy that was carried out in Catholic churches and cathedrals with uh, meridian lines that um, uh, were, were mapped out along the floor of some of these buildings with the sun shining in and they could do calculations of the heavenly bodies based on that and so on. But cooperation isn't the only way that science and religion have uh, interacted with each other. I mean, I think another way to think about it is um, not so much as um, an intellectual engagement, but as a social engagement. You have a batch of people here who progressively become known as professional scientists. This is particularly in the Victorian period. Um, the word scientist isn't really used until about the 1840s. And uh, this new breed of people, professional scientists, come into being. And on the other hand, you have a, a batch of, of um, uh, clergymen, uh, maybe many of them doing natural history. They're kind of parson naturalists. So maybe a way to think about it is not an intellectual struggle. Maybe it's more a sort of social competition between two groups looking for a hearing in society. And authority is progressively moving out and away from the old clerical elite into a new professional scientific elite. So if you begin to think of the history that way, you move away from simple conflict or cooperation, more into social relations and more into a contestation for power in society, and so on. Um, I suppose what I have been arguing is that there's truth and falsity in all of these models. So the approach that I took was to, um, you're referring to Ron, Ron Numbers here, in some work that I did um, in connection with some books that Ron edited and, and, and another book I, or two I did myself. Um, what, I, what I began to say is, look, let's take a single religious tradition and by doing that, you can, relatively speaking, control for the theological beliefs. They all subscribe to the same confession. They all, excuse me, teach from the same texts, things of that sort. And then you say, look, let's pick Belfast and, and pick somewhere in the American South, um, South Carolina. Pick somewhere in Canada. Uh, maybe pick somewhere in South Africa, uh, Scotland. And then you say, take the challenge of Darwin's theory of evolution. On the surface, you would think that they must all have responded the same way. Surely they're reading the same theology books, uh, they're reading the same doctrines, they're teaching the same catechisms, all that. Surely they're going to re respond the same way. No. They all respond remarkably differently. Now, by doing that, I'm not saying I was able to control the variables the way a sociologist <coughs> would or an economist would try to, but I was trying to some degree to control for the theological beliefs 
And then if you find differences, it's worth looking to other factors that might have a role to play. So in the American South, you couldn't talk about Darwin without thinking about race relations and slavery. Um, uh, does the fact that Darwin thinks that on one step back all human races are brothers and sisters, um, is that very different from thinking that certain races were created to be superior to others? Well, yes, it is. So the response to Darwin is at least mixed up with kind of race relations there. Uh, you go to New Zealand, and um, what you find is a huge embrace of Darwin, unlike the American South, huge embrace of Darwin, partly because they fastened on Darwin's language of a struggle for survival. This gave legitimacy to dispossessing the Maori because the struggle for survival simply said that the superior group would win out in a, in a struggle for existence. So in very, very different environments, you get these contextual factors uh, making a huge difference. Why is it that in Belfast, um, Protestant and indeed Catholic religious communities were deeply troubled by Darwin? But in Edinburgh, there was scarcely any any, any concern at all. And I, I put this down to different spatial um, and arenas, if you like, with different cultural assumptions and um, uh, with different, um, shall we say, social challenges. And that makes a difference. So I think I'm arguing for no single overarching model, whether conflict or cooperation or social competition, but um, a kind of old-fashioned, I'm a map maker, you know. Let's look at, let's just do a map of this and let's see what difference the maps show. I think that's what I'm trying to do, Richard. Thank you, David. Thank you. The, these scholars in, in the book that we're discussing, Geographies of Knowledge, have clearly been profoundly influenced by your work. If you yourself had to single out one scholar whose work has influenced you more than anyone else's has, who would that be and why? Um, well, as somebody said, um, if you don't know the answer to the question, question the question. <laughs> so will you allow me to have two bites at this cherry for two different points in, in my career? And I'll uh, only say a half about each one of them, so I'll not take up any more time. Uh, very clearly, the, the person who most influenced me just about the time I was finishing up as an undergraduate was a Dutch historian, Roger Hoichas. And uh, I came across a book that um, he had written entitled Religion and the Rise of Modern Science. And it was a look at, indeed, the relevance of uh, religious ideas um, in the cultivation of science in the 17th and 18th uh, centuries. Now, with hindsight, there are many, many flaws in this book. Uh, with hindsight, I, I can say I certainly wouldn't um, share... Um, uh, all of uh, Hoykas's uh, analysis. Uh, but I read this as a final year undergraduate, and there were two thoughts that were really important to me. One was this opened up to me a whole realm of scholarship that I had absolutely no idea about. And um, I was captivated by it and uh, thought that um, I wondered, and this is the second point, um, has such an approach ever been used for the history of the earth sciences and the geographical sciences in particular? And I went along to Bill Kirk and said, you know, is there any possibility of um, writing a PhD on a topic of this sort? And I was very fortunate that Queens was one of the very few places where within geography I could have written such a, a PhD. It's, it's much more common now, and um, he took me on uh, to do this. So I think Hoykast was really important in opening up uh, a realm to me that had been uh, quite unknown before. 
But I think the other person who uh, intellectually, I think, has maybe had the profoundest um, impact is the uh, Yale uh, philosopher and philosopher of religion, Nicholas Walterstorff. Um, I got to know Nicholas um, through his writings initially, and I think this is what I've got most from uh, Nicholas. Um, he has written on everything from justice and epistemology, aesthetics, um, art, um, lament, uh, liturgy, and so on. And it was just the breadth of interest. And I remember him saying to me, he said, David, you know, I'm not an expert in anything at all. Um, I just have followed where I think uh, ideas were taking me. And I've been inspired by that. I mean, I feel very much like uh, like Nick in that sense. Um, I'm an expert in really nothing, but I've had a hugely enjoyable career dabbling in a whole range of things from uh, theories of human origins uh, to the history of geography to um, uh, science and religion and uh, now trying to write about climate. And I find him inspirational. Of course, um, Nick is a profoundly great philosopher, particularly of uh, a political philosopher of justice. Um, but he also said to me something else that has stuck with me um, many years ago. Uh, and I, it just was at the beginnings of what's now become quite common. Um, he said, uh, what we should never try to do is lay aside one's own particularity. Uh, uh, when you enter, you, you are of a particular gender. You are of a particular um, political persuasion. Uh, you, have, you might have some religious or non-religious uh, viewpoints. Um, trying to just say none of that matters and to enter onto a, a, a straightforward plane of simple objectivity is not only impossible, but it's not desirable. And being clearer about that has been a kind of inspiration uh, to, to me um, to not try to masquerade under complete objectivity, but to mobilize one's particularity. So I think, if you don't mind, those are two people, Richard, that I've uh, learned a great deal from. Perfect. Thank you, David. My final question's going to bring us up to the contemporary moment, which reprises something that you mentioned earlier in our conversation when you were talking about the fact that these things you've studied are not merely historical, but they clearly have contemporary power. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been much attention to science of various kinds, even much professing of following the science and the need to do so. Uh, in your work, including your influential study, Putting Science in Its Place, and you referred again to this today in our conversation, David, you've talked about the way in which place is essential to the generation of scientific knowledge, but also to its consumption. In the context of our current travails amid the pandemic and the relationship between science and that crisis, what does the geography of science suggest you might reflect on in relation to that current moment? Well, I mean, I think this is a wonderful moment in a way, if you can say that about such a dreadful time that we're in, but a wonderful moment to be testing out the value of thinking geographically about, about science. I mean, here are just a few very preliminary uh, thoughts, uh, Richard. Um, I think the first one is, surely we have seen now that there's no such thing as the science. Right from the word go, we're talking about many, many different sciences. And those different sciences are not always converging on exactly the same solution. So for a start, I think we have to uh, be much more loose about thinking of not the scientific method, but the methods of different sciences. And once we get that in our, in our minds, then um, it, it becomes much more difficult to mobilize and frankly, it has often been uh, it has often been mobilized merely rhetorically here. The science is telling us, 
This science has not been really, in my view, uh, telling us anything at all. Different sciences have been saying really important things. And once you hear those uh, sciences and those, they've got to weigh them up in, in some important way. So that's the first thing I would say. Different sciences, and they're going to be practiced out of different kinds of environments, different laboratories, all sorts of things. So uh, I, I think that we, we need to ponder on that. But surely, surely we have seen that the science is practiced in a political context and a cultural context. Because one moment governments will be saying, we're going to follow the science. And then the next moment they're going to say, but um, the economic scientists are telling us something else. And we've got to think about the good of the economy. And, and then the next moment, but we also have to think about the mental health of people um, who are being uh, in, in self-isolation and so on for long periods of time. Um, uh, we could go on, I suppose, elaborating very many of those. So I think there is no such thing as um, a science that's disengaged from or separate from the society that sponsors it, funds it, and into which its um, ideas are, are projected. Now, I think another thing about this is that um, it seems to me that the science or science did seem to be saying very different things in uh, different locations. Um, uh, for example, early on, uh, there was some hope for herd immunity. And uh, of course, that was tried in Sweden and was thought to be successful for a while. Uh, now the numbers are creeping up uh, quite dramatically uh, there. Um, should hopes have been uh, based on that? Others were pushing for and still are pushing for um, hope of a vaccine um, as a way of, of uh, controlling this. Um, uh, are scientists pro or anti-lockdown in different places? You're going to get um, different answers. So I think that, again, mapping these um, out um, makes life even more messy than it conceivably is at the minute. Uh, but nonetheless, I think might be telling us um, something something that's, that's true. So I would say, you know, um, scientific claims are conceived in particular circumstances. And we've seen that in the, uh, with COVID. Uh, they're consumed differently in different parts of the world. Uh, compare what's happening in Britain with what's happening in uh, Sweden, with what's happening in the United States. Clearly, ideas don't travel unchanged from place to place. As, as ideas uh, travel, they um, transform because they're coming into a very different situation from the one in which they um, arose. So I think what I'm saying uh, about a geographical approach here is that it's never wrong to ask the question, what interests are at stake whenever someone makes a pronouncement about some particular issue? Are there political interests, financial interests, economic ones, cultural ones, um, rhetorical ones? I don't know. It's never wrong to ask that. That's not to presuppose that the answer is reducible to those. No, not for a minute. Science is discovering true things, I think, about how the world is and certainly about how this virus um, operates. But a little critical distancing um, uh, to be suspicious of some of the rhetoric, I think, might be a wise thing. We've heard in this conversation wide-ranging and fascinating insights from David about his work, his ideas, and about the complexity and subtlety of thinking that reaches out over many of the major phenomena that we all have to address and consider. I hope that listeners will follow up and go and look again at his work and learn from it afresh but in closing this podcast i'd like to say with profound thanks uh much gratitude to david for great conversation and thank you to professor david livingston of queen's university belfast thank you david <laughs>